2 is a very appropriate place for us to go. That is a gospel passage, but it's a passage that talks about living out or adorning the gospel of God in your family, in your church life, and in the world. Interestingly, Titus 2, if you'll be turning there, opens up some categories that we're going to be looking at. Categories of older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And we just saw a younger woman and a young man that's been influenced by the gospel. Um, I you know, appreciated Rex's uh, heart and his testimony. If uh, I thought if we took the piece of paper out of his hands and he started preaching, we might not have uh, need for me this morning because he's quite a speaker in his own right. But we'll see where that takes us um, later on. Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be looking this morning. It's talking, look at verse 10. It's talking about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Literally, to wear or to magnify through your life and your speech the gospel in a way that influences the world. It influences people to come to Christ. Um, the opposite of adorning the doctrine of God would be in um, the Christian church to be a hypocrite. It's kind of the worst title that you could give to yourself or think of yourself as or give to someone else. And it's what Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees. It's sort of the harshest harshest declaration Jesus gave of people. To be a hypocrite, what a horrible definition to wear. And as Christian believers, we fight our own hypocrisy and we, we fight through the discouragements of hypocrisy and yet we, we fight with the power of God on our side to display the gospel behind shut doors, in our homes, and in the workplace. And that's what Titus 2 is talking about, adorning the doctrine of God. Sadly, when we don't adorn the doctrine of God and we live a hypocritical life, we're actually doing what Jesus condemned of the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 13, he says, you shut, he's talking to the Pharisees, he said, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. It's an awful, awful indictment. In Matthew 15, um, 7 and 8, Jesus said of the Pharisees, this people, and he's quoting Isaiah, this people, you hypocrites, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Well, we're fighting to be the opposite of that, aren't we? We are. And to do that brings the opposite result, to live for Christ in very practical ways, how you treat your wife, wife, how you treat your husband as a spiritual leader in the home, employee, how you treat your employer, employer, how you, entreat your, how you treat your employees. That's all either magnifying the grace of the gospel or it's undercutting it. And it all kind of comes down on our Christian testimony, how we parent, how we disciple or do not. I mean, that is part of this kingdom building project that Christ includes us in. Remember, First um, and Second Timothy and Titus, th these are the blueprint letters of the New Testament. It's the blueprint of the church, the building project that Christ promised to, promises to build. He will build his church, but we get to participate in the building project. And Titus 2 shows us how. And Titus 2 very practically breaks up 
the paragraph before us with some categories of people in terms of their age and in terms of their gender and then in terms of social status we'll see later on at the end here but age and gender you have older men that are mentioned first follow as I read verses 1 through 10 Paul talking to Titus says but as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Stop there. Um, we're going to be looking closely at the younger men this morning and also what is called bond servants in verse 9. But just to get a running start, again, there are five categories that, that Paul uses to break down what the body of Christ looks like. First of all, we have older men, verse 2. Paul would have been an older or aged saint in the church. And he's saying to Titus, look, encourage the older men to be sober-minded. These are applications of the gospel. This is Titus teaching the gospel and saying this is how you apply it. Older men, sober-minded, dignified, worthy of respect, self-controlled. That word's going to be repeated throughout this paragraph, by the way. That's of sound mind, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, we looked at this last week. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent. They're to be prayers in behavior. They, they have a heart for God. They're not slanderers. They're not diabolus. They're not people who are accusing people of things behind the scenes. They're not slaves to much wine. They're not trying to um, sort of check out with addictions and things like that. And because they're fighting against those sins, they are to teach. They're, they're, they're to go into a discipling ministry. Older women training the younger women. You see that in the next verse, verse 4. Train the young women. That word train is derived from the same Greek word where we get self-control. You're, you're giving your mentoring of how you're self-controlled to the younger women. What do they be to be self-controlled in? They're to be trained to be husband lovers. Older women are to help younger women stay married. Okay? It's as practical as that. Don't divorce your husband. That's an older woman to younger woman ministry. To be children lovers. Don't despise your kids. Don't give up on your kids. Stick with them and keep loving them. To be, verse 5, women or young women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, busy at home. We talked about that last week. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. We talked about that also last week. You can click on it. We're not going there this morning. All right. That the word of God may not be reviled. That the word of God won't be blasphemed. Live out the gospel in this way so that God's glory will be on display. Now we come to verse 6, the younger men. I love the brevity and the sort of acuteness of verse 6. Likewise, urge 
the younger men to be self-controlled. Okay, that's it, right? Okay, here it is. Uh, the watershed idea is that younger men need to be self-controlled. Fruit of the Spirit, self-controlled. The, the assumption might be, and I know this is just way off script, that younger men sometimes are a little bit wild and a little bit out of control and might need self-control. Is that crazy to you? No, no, it's not crazy. Young men need self-control. It's easy, the older I get, and it's sort of ironic, to forget how out of control I was as a young kid and teenager and even young adult. It's important to learn self-control. The Bible assumes young men need some sense taught to them. They need to learn to be sensible. It assumes that, and it also assumes that young men can be taught to gain some sense in this world. We need it as young men, and we can be taught self-control. It's a mind word. We can have our, tra- our minds trained in being sensible or temperate. It's what Plato, the great um, philosopher, said of self-control. He said, temperance, it sets right the whole mind of man. Be self-controlled. It's brevity here. It's, it's just given in brevity that this is what needs to happen for young men. But it's picking up on the fact that self-control is a theme throughout this paragraph. Remember, verse 2, older men are supposed to model self-control. Older women, they're supposed to train self-control to younger women. And now the men, the young men, listen, young men, be self-controlled. That will be a watershed issue in your life. It's important to grow from a youthfulness where you sort of have the tiger by the tail and you think you can take on, you know, the world's problems, you can do everything, and you throw yourself out into harm's way. Instead, being sober-minded, having some gravity to yourself, some dignity, some soundness in your speech and in your actions and in your attitudes. If this transformation happens in your life as a young man, you will be a leader in your home, a leader in the workplace, and you will be a spiritual leader, perhaps in the church. And I pick up on that theme with the fact that Paul, as an aged man, is actually modeling an older man mentoring a younger man who is Titus. Now, Titus is probably in his 30s, and he is this spiritual leader on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, and he is a church planter, and he is, he is commissioned to give order and organization and spiritual leadership to the church movement on the island of Crete, raising up elders over local churches. And so Titus is literally the younger man. You could, in this scenario, you could see it this way, verse six. Likewise, you can insert, I, Paul, the older man, urge the younger men or man, you, Titus included, to be self-controlled. I build that off of, The fact that the next verse is where Paul says to Titus, you've got to model this. Look at that. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Verse 8, and sound speech. Titus, guess what? You've got to be the example. The word tupos here, it's a Greek word. It means to mark. It's the idea of taking, you know, your ink pen and marking the paper signing your name. You got to be the signature example of a gravitas of leadership and dignity and self-control. 
a gospel that's lived out in front of the world. This is, this is hard work for men. We picked on the women last week, but it's very important that the men not be the goof-offs, the people who are checking out on our duties. And all of you men, older and younger, have responsibilities where you are leading either well or poorly, either actively or passively. You're either checked into how God is using you or you're checked out. In other words, you're either being a hypocrite or you're being the real thing. And depending on how you are being and how you are living, that is giving a positive gospel adorning influence or a negative one. So, how do we do it? What does this look like? Well, look again. What is Paul telling Titus to do? He's telling him to be a model of good works and to teach. Remember verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This tells me two things, and I have seen this in my own personal life, and I'm sure many of you have seen this in yours. How do we grow a young man who might be out of control to maturity where you are self-controlled. How does that happen? Two things, and I think it's exemplified in Scripture here. One, as a young man, you have to know and observe an older or spiritually mature person live their life in front of you and make good godly decisions in front of you. That's number one. That's how you grow. I'm telling you, it happened to me over and over again. I sort of put myself under older men who were more mature, a little bit further down the road than I was, and that happened to me through youth group. It happened to me through internships. It happened to me in the local church. It happened to me at at the master's college where I was employed. It happened to me at Liberty University where I went to college. It happened to me at this church, this church, this church. It happened to me. And I also put myself in a position to be blessed in that way. I would be in people's offices. I would ride in the car with people. I would drum, drum, you know, drum up conversations with the people about their life, about the choices they made in dating, in their devotional life, in buying things and selling things. How did you live your life? And I'm telling you, the answers that were given to me in those particular conversations deeply impacted me. If you're older, don't deny the younger person to go into the car with you to places and have conversations with you. That is your responsibility, older men. Spiritually mature men, take younger ones under your wing. Younger men, seek to be under the influence of older, godly, mature people. Second, second way your influence is through Learning doctrine. Learning gospel theology. And you might say, that sounds dry. That might sound academic or lifeless, but I'm telling you, the other watershed influence in my life was when I was mentored to and directed to read certain books about the sovereignty of God, about the gospel, clarifying truth, grasping truth, getting accessibility to God's word. It's one thing to kind of know Bible stories and maybe know where to look stuff up, but it's another thing to to have at uh, fingertip grasp level 
the Word of God. And by being in Bible studies, like Wednesday's men's group that's happening again this Wednesday, hint, hint, come one, come all, younger and older men, come to these things because it engages your heart with what you know, what you don't yet know, and what you need to know, what you can articulate, and what you can't yet articulate but need to articulate. Truth. Not just reading it, you know, in a five-minute devotion, but grasping with and grappling with truth. That's how you grow. You get around people that are growing, and then, and this is gender-specified here. I'm not saying you can't, I mean, Timothy learned from his mother and grandmother. I'm not saying you can't learn from your mom or your grandmom or, or women in the church. We should learn from all the godly saints in the church, but there is a targeted expressed design to learning by being younger a man, younger man under an older mentor and then secondly secondly learning truth and for those of you who have had broken homes well welcome to the family of God where you can get it here right and if we deny the younger people the opportunity to grow under us then we're denying people something great and we shouldn't do that so the younger men I love the brevity here. I don't want to miss anything. Sound and speech, verse 8. This is literally, Paul, Paul is telling Titus, look, your speech, how you talk about life, um, whether you're a jokester or somebody who's blowing life off or whether you're somebody who's serious in your speech is a huge difference maker. You have to be sound in speech. And what's going to happen if you do that? There's going to be an amazing effect that will happen if you live out the gospel truth in front of people. Look at this, verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You got to understand that within the church, there's no neutral gear. You've heard it. You're either driving forward or you're in reverse. Well, the same thing is true in the kingdom of God. You have people who are standing for truth and you have people who are standing against truth. You're not neutral. You're either for Christ or against him. And there are people in the church who are skeptics, who are, whether they know it or not, being an influence negatively on people's spiritual lives. The hypocrites, it's, it's happening. It always happens. It's always part of the kingdom of God. And wherever there's advancement, there's going to be attack. Wherever there's positive light, there's going to be a spiritual warfare of darkness that will come in and try to invade and interrupt spiritual life and growth. Where you have the wheat, you always have the tares. You do, and it's part of church. It's normal. But for those of you who take up the mantle like Titus and you live the gospel, you learn the gospel, you live the gospel, you, you repent of your own hypocrisy, your own negative influences. When you do that, it, it shuts the mouths of other people who are antagonistic to the gospel. In Titus 1, you have in verse 11, those who were needing to be silenced, those who were needing to be silenced, who were against the gospel. those who were upsetting whole families, Titus 1, 11. So you have these people. And, you know, John Calvin, I love his candor with this. He said, look, you always have people who are against you. And, and the more that you have these people who are against you, the more it motivates me to try to live what I believe and guard my speech and live the gospel. It's like this driver because that influence, it shuts their mouths. It vindicates the gospel. It makes gospel truth irrefutably true. It's true. Oh, it really does work in a person's life. Oh, it really does change hearts and lives, and you're different because of what you believe up here. It's lived out, and it just makes people kind of stop, stop their criticisms, 
Stop their antagonisms. I mean, in your family, you know that with extended family. That's a good example, right? Now we're talking real life. It's where you, you know, I just want them to stop it. Stop antagonizing me. Well, live it out. Live it out, right? And people will sort of stop. They'll kind of back off. You'll see it. This, This proves out the gospel to live it out. And it also, I think, it provides an entree for repentance, does in in first and second timothy it talks about that god grants repentance for people who live it out well now let's move on let's talk about the last classification here um we're moving from the church to the world this is living out the gospel in your world beginning at verse nine and i love what paul picks up on here because it's something that's shocking and and it's something that you have to kind of deal with and that is the topic of the social status of slaves in the Old and New Testament times. And again, if, if we were honest about our world today, there is slavery in our world still today in certain forms and fashions. We thank God that slavery was eradicated from our nation. We, we sort of have a gut check in our own hearts because we have that in our history and our heritage. Um, but the Bible here is neither condemning slavery nor condoning it. It's just acknowledging its existence, especially in the New Testament context. People like uh, William Wilberforce and John Wesley and, and George Whitfield, who preached the gospel, brought gospel truths that ultimately wisened people up to get rid of slavery in Europe and in our country. But we have to deal with slavery as it's part of our inspired scripture. There are the abuses and the horrors of slavery, slavery are something that I hate and detest. There's a lot of things I hate that have happened. But at the same time, we have to grasp the fact that slavery is a theme from Genesis through the New Testament. If you go to Exodus, you have the Israelites who were brought under bondage in slavery and they were beaten and they were, they were tortured and they were abused. And guess what? They were redeemed out of that situation by God. And that redemption story is a foreshadowing of guess what? The son of man who came to the earth in the form of a slave who died to pay for us as a ransom for us to be bought out of our slave enslavement to sin so that we could be slaves for Christ. So there's a lot of a, there's a big metaphor behind this social structure that we have to understand. I'm a slave for Christ. He is the master and I am the servant and he rules and reigns over my life and determines everything about me. That's what it means to be a slave. Joseph, we're going to talk about him. He was a slave. Daniel was a a slave. He was brought into Babylon to be a slave. You have um, sort of better situations and worse situations as you talk about the idea of being slaves. You have Paul who is a prisoner in a slave-like existence with Barnabas being beaten for the sake of Christ. You have a lot of situations where we have to wrestle with this issue, the idea of, of being a slave. It shouldn't be just the boogeyman that we can't talk about, but we gotta, we got to talk about this issue. I, next um, series, next sermon series I want to do, and this sort of is launching me into that, is a series on the one chapter book called Philemon. I want to talk about that story. It's a slave owner, it's a slave who gets saved, and Paul who's speaking directly to those issues surrounding that. 
powerful book, powerful story. That'll be what we'll do after our study in Titus. Well, the Bible, uh, the Bible actually, it addresses slaves directly in the body of Christ. And there's a reason why. Because once you became a Christian as a slave, you were a co-equal heir of Christ. And so when Paul is speaking, you know, older man, he's speaking in terms of age and gender, he's also speaking directly to the slave in church and is dignifying that slave, saying, look, you're a co-equal heir of Christ. There's, there's neither male nor female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian. I mean, you got barbarians at the table. Oh, you know, you're, you're with Gentiles. Whoa, I never ate with you before. You, slaves are free. You have, you have uh, people who are government officials and you got the slave who's owned by somebody else. All at the fellowship supper, all observing a baptism together, all eating and drinking together, loving together, worshiping together, dignified together. I mean, the gospel has set that person free from their sin, and 1 Corinthians 7 talks all about that. We'll look at that another time. But it's an amazing idea that your social obligations are still at play as a slave who's been redeemed, who's on equal footing around the cross with, with the fellow slaves who are saints in the body of Christ together for the gospel. That's sort of a lead-in to Philemon. Let's look at um, the differentiation between a good slave situation and a bad slave situation. Um, First Timothy um, shows one situation where you have a believing master, and there are exhortations in that situation. Look at this. First Timothy 6, 1. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Look at this. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It's interesting kind of radical language here in terms of um, employer-employee situations and in this case, master-to-slave situations. Um, literally, it, a master, that word is des- despotos or where you would get the word despot, leader, and then you have a slave who has relinquished, has no rights in terms of um, being owned by a master. But even in First Timothy, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you need to teach that slaves should not exploit their master's love for them and they should serve them and bless them even in that relationship, even if you have a Christian who is your master. And that applies. I talked to some people first hour who were talking about being employers. As Christian employers, there are times where their employees will, you know, know that they're Christians and appeal to them that way. And it's a hard balance, even as as an employer, to hold the line on people that you love and you're trying to win to Christ. So there's some interesting applications at play, though this is much more dramatic than an employer-employee relationship, but there are some similarities. And what happens to the slave who's come to Christ, who's under a non-Christian? Look at 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, it's all through the Bible here, but 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, this is the word for slaves. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is the abusive owner. 
For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's wild. Why is that? Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sit, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? This is the situation where you're a slave and you're a believer, but you're, you're sinning. You, st- you stole something. You, you backtalked, you were disrespectful, you tried to run away, and you were beaten for it. Peter's saying, what, what good is that for the gospel, for your witness? He goes on, he says, but if, verse 20, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this, you have been called. In other words, when you're abused and you live for Christ anyway, it puts the gospel on display. Now we can apply it to our culture. There are situations, maybe as an employee, that you feel like you're owned by your boss. Maybe your boss is putting you in a power play situation and you know that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're gonna get fired and it will destroy your life or disintegrate your existence. And so you feel owned by your employee, employer. Well, the Bible says that when you adorn the gospel of God and you're gracious and you're doing well and you're still abused in your situation, that that happens has a redeeming effect. It's radical stuff. It does put the gospel on display. And as Christians, we're called to not repay evil for evil. We're called to turn the other cheek. We're called at times to be exploited and taken advantage of. I mean, I remember one mentor saying, look, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, it it makes a Christian look naive when they love because love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We're to put up with a lot as believers. Now, it's, it's important to stand up for ourselves and appropriately approach situations. I'm not saying that we're always those in a situation where we're to be defrauded for the, the sake of Christ, but our attitude and our demeanor needs to be humble in this way. Well, first of all, no matter your status, you're to live out the gospel in the world. Back to Titus chapter 2. Bond servants are to be submissive. They're to be hupatasso or ranking themselves under their own masters. Masters who are good and masters who are evil. And then look at this. In everything, verse 9, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Well-pleasing, it means to be a blessing. In everything, we're to be a blessing to our leader. Um, perhaps this applies in an employee-employer relationship. You're to bless your boss in everything, every situation. It's the same word that's used in Philippians 4 about being a sweet-smelling aroma, a blessing. It adorns the doctrine of God. And then there's two temptations that Paul picks up on. Not being argumentative and not, verse 10, pilfering. So no matter your status, no matter your circumstances, and no matter your temptations, let's pick up on two temptations. One, being argumentative. You know what that means? That's the idea of backtalking your leader or your boss, in this case, your master. Backtalking. Um, I, I know this doesn't apply at all, but it, you know, in, the, in the public setting or, or in the you know, regular work situation, there's never a temptation to gossip about your boss behind his, his or her back, right? I mean, that never happens. There's never backbiting. There's never complaining at work, right? or even in your own heart, grumbling about people you work with or for, that's what this is talking about. Not being argumentative, not, not whispering behind somebody's back and going, man, can you believe this or that? I'm not only are you a bad witness, you're no fun to hang around if you're like that, right? Being a discouragement, 
The Bible says not to do that. The Bible says that it is radical, gospel, transformative witness where it wins people to Christ when you don't complain about your boss behind his or her back. Wins people to Jesus. Like, wow. I mean, there's a crowd over there. You, you sense it. They're talking about their boss, your boss. You can either join in or you can go, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's all good. I'm going to get back to work. And, and people notice. They go, what? Why is that person part of this crowd? Well, I'm not going to do that because it defames Christ to gossip. So we don't do that. Second temptation is pilfering, and that is stealing. Stealing. A slave would feel perhaps entitled to steal, feel like it's his or her right to steal. I've been abused, so I'm going to steal. I'm going to take something that, you know, I have access to. Maybe they've built trust in the home, and they're like a steward of the home, and they're going to steal something. And the Bible says don't do that. To apply that today, it'd be like, uh, you know, sort of um, fudging on your time sheet, your time card. It would be fudging on your work ethic. It would be abusing your schedule, coming in late, leaving early, not getting the job done, sloughing off on the job. These are all sins of stealing against your employer. And that's when you don't do that, when you have a good work ethic, you're living out the gospel. And let me tell you, I think that Paul addresses slaves here to make a point to the whole body of Christ. A slave has no rights, owned by the master, has good days and bad days dependent upon the master. And so if a slave can live out the gospel in their situation, then can't the older men live out the gospel in their situation? Younger men, older women, younger women? I mean, it sort of strips away any of the excuses to say, I got an out because of my situation. I need to like sort of, you know, pull over and park and not live out the gospel. No, the slave is in a, a situation where they are in utter humility, having to live out the gospel and care about the soul of their master. And so you and your situation should care about the body of Christ, no matter if you're a statesman, no matter if you're an employer, no matter if you're gainfully employed, no matter what your situation, if the slave is called to do it, then everybody else is also called to join in to adorning the gospel. See how verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Who gets the privilege to be the example of that to the rest of the body of Christ? The slave. Kind of appropriate, that's what Jesus did. Jesus came in the form of a slave. He's our ultimate example. Slave. What's amazing here in this text is that the tables are completely turned in terms of the slave to master relationship, in terms of the spiritual realm, and in terms of eternity. In the natural realm or day-to-day living, the master is just the determiner of everything, all the outcomes, all the outcomes of when the slave eats, of how the slave is, is taken care of, how the slave works, um, how well things are going in the slave's life. But in the spiritual kingdom, in the spiritual realm, the slave and the way he or she is living out the gospel is determinative, is instrumental in terms of how the eternal life will turn out for the master. Do you see how things are flipped on its head? The slave is the one in terms of how well he or she is adorning the gospel of God. That is determinative. That's instrumental in terms of how things will end up and turn out for the master. See this in Joseph's life, right? 
Remember that? Who sold Joseph into slavery in Genesis 37? The brothers. Joseph was a faithful slave who was honored through his faithfulness and the providence of God and was exalted to kind of the viceroy position over Egypt under Pharaoh and suddenly his brothers are begging for their lives as they find out that, oh my goodness, Joseph is in command and is determining my life or death. Everything flipped on its head in the story of Joseph. And if you as an abused employee or someone who feels like you're in a slave-like existence, perhaps you're you're the wife who's underneath the rule and tyranny of an unsaved husband who's treating you poorly. Well, your gospel witness in the home, your humility of heart, the way you adorn the gospel is actually determinative and it is, it is influential negatively or positively regarding your husband's eternal life, regarding your employer's eternal life. The kingdom of God is just wild the way it flips things on its head. We live the gospel out in front of a lost and dying world. And we are the agents of grace in terms of how we live and how we communicate truth in the normal stations of life. And it influences people positively or negatively. But it comes with an eternal mindset. It's the mindset of, of Joseph. Just turn here quickly, Genesis 39. Um, a couple chapters into the story of Joseph. Remember when he was tempted? He's at Potiphar's house. He's actually a slave servant in that situation. He's under a, a, a kind master, someone who, who loves him and has full respect of Joseph. He's won his, Joseph has won Potiphar's trust completely. And then he's tempted by Potiphar's wife. Verse 6 says Joseph was handsome and in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Jo Joseph is Potiphar's proxy at that point as the servant, as the slave. Nor has he kept, any, kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife how can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. So how do you adorn the gospel of God? You adorn the gospel of God in a lost and dying world at the workplace by having a God word focus and saying, God put me here. God put me in this job. God put me with these people. God put me in this family. God put me at this church. I adorn the gospel of God. I don't steal from it. I don't exploit it. I don't badmouth it. I see that the gospel is on display because I am underneath God, who's my ruler, chief, and leader. That's how you survive through hardship and you adorn, you wear, you magnify the gospel. Doctrine comes to life. It becomes irrefutably true. To adorn, verse 10, is to, is to, it's cosmion, it's to, it's the word, where we get the word cosmetics, it's to beautify, it's to make the gospel attractive, because it's so countercultural and different to have attitudes and actions of humility before a lost and dying world, before fellow believers, as we adorn the gospel. Go back to 1 Peter 2 as we close. 1 Peter 2 shows that Jesus came as the ultimate example and slave. Why does the slave glorify God and endure under an unjust master? Verse 21, 
For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself in him who judges justly. I remember the first time when I was in college, I read this verse and the illumination of the Holy Spirit hit my heart like a thunder and lightning shot in my soul. And I thought to myself, I imaged in my mind, Jesus Christ as a suffering servant, being abused, being beaten, being tortured unjustly. He's on the cross, writhing up and down on that tree. But in his heart, his means of survival was like this. I'm entrusting my soul to you, God, my father, as I go through this pain down here on earth. And as you do that in any situation, in any variety of situations that you find yourself in where you have a Godward focus, you will magnify the glory of God and people will come into the kingdom through that display of grace in your life. What is the gospel? Titus 2 wraps up in this way. This is what we adorn. This is what's magnified. This is what's made real when we live it out in the home church and work. Look at this, verse 11. You're saved from the penalty of sin. For by the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You're saved from the penalty of sin. Secondly, you're saved from the power of sin. Training us, the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Then ultimately, you're saved from the presence of sin. You're saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin in heaven, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you awaiting Christ's return? Let's adorn the gospel of God until then. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for time in your word. We thank you that we have been saved from the penalty and the ruling power of sin, and ultimately we will be saved from the presence of sin. We thank you that we can live out the gospel and make it believable. God, let us not be hypocrites. I know we all have to fight our hypocrisy, but Lord, let us strive by your grace to live it out in the home and at church and at work and bring people into the kingdom for your name's sake. No matter our status, no matter our circumstances, no matter our temptations, let us glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.